0: Reading from the letter of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water." This is God's word for his people this morning. We look to him to open our hearts and our minds to receive what he has to say. Father in heaven, we pray that as we turn our hearts to your word, you would illuminate us, that you would give us insight and guide us into the truth as your spirit works within us this morning. And we pray, Father, that having heard your word, we would go out and be doers of your word, not those who deceive ourselves, but those who seek to through deeds done in the meekness of humility, give glory and honor and praise to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. It's been kind of hard this summer not to think about forest fires. There have been so many that have been burning across Western Canada and the United States, um, and we've felt the effect in terms of all of the smoke that we've been kind of choking on for weeks and weeks now. How many times have we gone for a drive up 2A and looked off to the west and instead of seeing the beautiful panorama of the Rockies, um, what we see is this smoky haze and maybe if the sun is just right, just a little bit of a silhouette of some of those mountains hiding behind the smoke. Um, We had the privilege of being up at Bill and Maurice um, just a couple of weeks ago And uh, looking out from their back deck that day, we could actually see the mountains. But Marie said that uh, that was actually the first time in quite a while that even they who live so close to the mountains were actually able to see them. So we've been thinking about forest fires. They are a very current and contemporary issue. And we know that. We've seen this in previous years as well. What we sometimes forget, I think, is that forest fires have been going on for as long as there have been forests. This is a problem that is as old as creation and a problem that they experience quite routinely even in the ancient world, which is why James makes an illustration of this in chapter 3 and does so with the very clear expectation that his readers will know what he is speaking of. He writes, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And we've seen this too in in the physical world. These fires that have burned large tracts of land are occasionally described, at least on the weather network, as a force of nature. They sweep through and they destroy people's homes, even entire towns, as we saw earlier this summer. And yet, if the authorities are able to determine a cause for the fire, if it's not lightning, which it often is, then it often boils down to something that is seemingly innocuous. It boils down to a campfire that was not quite completely put out before the campers went home, or to sparks, just sparks, from electrical transformers on poles that are used to bring power into remote areas. And like the old song said, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And James tells us it really doesn't take much at all. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now, the thing is, James is not making a public service announcement. This is not the first century equivalent to one of those old Smokey the Bear posters saying, remember, only you can prevent forest fires. That's not his point. This is really just a vivid illustration that's tucked away in the middle of several other vivid illustrations. James is the master of the mixed metaphor, or you might even say the scrambled metaphor. He takes all of these images that speak to a single point and he sort of blends them together and leaves it up to us to see the point that's being made. And his point here is that something very small can have an effect that is all out of proportion to its size, like the bit in the mouth of a horse. He wrote, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. A horse is a fairly large animal, and a bit is a fairly small piece of hardware, but a bit in the mouth of a horse that's been trained for it will guide the whole horse and make the horse go in the direction that we want it to go. Or a rudder attached to a great ship. Look at the ships also, he wrote. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. That was true in James' day, when even the great ocean-going ships were relatively small by today's standards, and it's still true. Rudders have changed a little bit in the way that they work, but it's still true that a giant ocean-going vessel can be controlled as to direction by one person working at a small wheel or other control setup to make it obey its will. So also... In just the same way, in the same way as that bit controls the horse, in the same way as the rudder sets the direction for the ship, so also the tongue is a small member. It doesn't amount to much in terms of human physiology, and yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze. By such a small fire. Now, one sermon that I listened to in preparation for this week suggested that occasionally the tongue boasts of great things because the tongue is capable of great things. Pastor Alistair Begg cited the poems of T.S. Eliot and others, the plays of William Shakespeare, and the speeches, the oratory of Winston Churchill as some examples of the tongue a symbol that represents human speech, being used and being used to profound and good effect. And this is true. If you are riding a horse, then it's a good thing to be in control. It's a good thing to be able to steer that horse in the direction that you want it to go. If you are on an ocean liner, if you have gone on a cruise and the captain or some other officer of the ship looks ahead and sees that there is a squall or a hurricane in the path of that ship, you want that little rudder to work, to turn that ship out of the path of a storm. Sometimes the tongue is like that. There are those historians who believe that in addition to the sacrifice that was made by the Royal Air Force in the early years of World War II, it was Winston Churchill's rhetoric, it was his ability to speak to the people of England and to the people of the world in such a way that they saw a path forward and they saw hope for victory that kept them in that war until all of the forces that needed to come together to win it did come together. So sometimes the tongue boasts of great things, and sometimes the tongue actually accomplishes great things. Not every use of the tongue is inherently destructive. We're going to come back to this a little bit later and particularly next Sunday. If the Lord is willing, really this Sunday is kind of the introduction to next Sunday, this whole passage that we're going to consider this week and next ought to go together. But James does seem particularly focused in this section on the destructive potential of the tongue. And it shouldn't surprise us really because this is one of those themes that James wove around the main idea, that central idea that we saw in chapter one of his letter. Remember? He wrote Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. The word for full and the word for perfect in Greek are the same. So have its perfect work or have its full effect that you may be full and complete, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And it's that idea of being perfect, of being full of the grace of God, of being mature in Christ, of being like Christ and complete that keeps James returning over and over again in this short little letter to the concepts of wisdom and speech. We started already in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now to give us an idea of what that would look like, to be slow to speak and slow to anger, he returns to the theme right away in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And it's not a coincidence that he's already introduced the idea of bridling something, of putting a bit into the mouth of something, of keeping that thing under control. Clearly, this was still very much in James' mind when he incorporated the same idea into his passage on speech in James chapter 3. It's just a short stretch from bridling the tongue to the illustration of putting a bit into the mouth of a horse to control its whole body. And the point is the same wisdom, the wisdom that comes down from above, the wisdom that God gives generously to all without reproach, dictates that we bridle or control the tongue. Because speaking quickly, speaking in anger, speaking without consideration for God's will and God's word can be so destructive. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James wrote, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, a a cosmos, a universe of unrighteousness. Within us, we have this, this thing that is so often a channel or, or a means for, for unrighteousness and wickedness to find expression in our lives. The tongue is set among our members, he says, staining the whole body. And this echoes what his older half-brother Jesus said. Um, what comes out of the mouth, Jesus said, proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile the person. And James just resonates with that when he says, The tongue is set among our members. It's just a small muscle in a relatively contained part of our bodies, and yet it stains the whole body. It sets on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. We used to say, when we were children, my mother taught me to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. And actually, quite the opposite is true. Broken bones... Heal. I haven't had a lot of experience with that myself, but I've seen others. Broken bones heal. They often heal without lasting consequence in a healthy person. But hell itself may find expression in the words that we say when we speak quickly. When we just let it out. You know, somebody says something and we come back. And we let them have it. When we speak quickly or we speak in anger, when we fail to shape our words by the wisdom that comes down from above, which is to shape our words by the word of God. See, in verses 13 through 15, the text that will bridge from this week's sermon to next week's sermon, James comes back to this very thing. He wrote, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, in other words, if you have that sinful, fallen, broken humanity still churning around in there, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. In chapter one, he said, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all. That's the wisdom that comes from above. We'll talk more about this next week. That's not this. What he's talking about in chapter three, this bitterness, this selfish ambition that exists in people's hearts, he says, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthy, earthly. It is unspiritual. It is actually demonic. So next week we'll see there are two kinds of so-called wisdom. One of them is wisdom. It's the wisdom that comes from above. It's the wisdom that God gives to his people when they ask. The other kind of wisdom is not neutral. The other kind of wisdom is demonic. It comes from below. Just as there is a kind of faith that cannot save, there is a kind of wisdom which is not wisdom a kind of wisdom which does not come down from above. In fact, it springs up from below. It is the wellspring of evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander, in the words of Jesus. And as James said in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And it doesn't take much. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now, I suppose that there are people who go into the woods with a deliberate, deliberate plan to just burn it all down. We call such people arsonists, and they are criminals, and they need to be caught and locked up. But for the most part, if a forest is set ablaze by an individual, it's more likely someone who just meant to have a tiny little fire, just enough to cook a hot dog or to make some s'mores, that's all. Surely the fire ban doesn't include that. It's just tiny, this tiny little campfire. And the result may not be what was intended. But in at least some cases, it was entirely predictable. That's why we actually have fire bans. Um, if I'm wrong, you can correct me later on, but that's my understanding anyway. That we have these fire bans because a tiny little fire that's not attended to properly can actually become the cause of vast destruction. And this is the impact of the tongue that is set on fire by hell, a tongue speaking so-called wisdom that is really earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's why James began this section by writing, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. One commentary on this passage, and this hits home, James gives a sober warning concerning the responsibility of teachers. Teachers exert influence over trusting students, a relationship that makes the students vulnerable to serious error. The teacher is held in strict account for what he or she teaches. This strict judgment should restrain teachers from careless words. The tongue of the teacher can be a devastating peril. And I doubt that there has ever been a preacher, myself included. And I know when Matt and I talked about this sermon and worked our way through, you feel the weight of this statement. Because here's James saying, not many of you should become teachers. And what are you going to do with it? Well, you're going to get up in front of the church and teach people. And you feel that in the preparation often When preparing a sermon, you realize you've preached to yourself more in the last six days than you do to the whole congregation in an hour, and this is certainly one of those occasions. And in a way, it almost makes you want to consign James to the appendices of the Bible, as Martin Luther allegedly did, so that it can be more or less safely ignored. But Calvin had a little bit different opinion on this text. John Calvin wrote... The common and almost universal interpretation of this passage is that the apostle discourages the desire for the office of teaching. And for this reason, because it is dangerous and exposes one to a heavier judgment in case he transgresses. And that is true. That is absolutely true. That is included in what James is saying to teachers and preachers and anyone who would stand before the people of God and try to share the word of the living God. But Calvin goes on. These who think that way think that James said, be not many masters. And this is Calvin's own translation of a Greek word through the Latin into the French as he writes his commentaries. And the idea of masters, though, is there in that didactic sort of sense. And they think that James said, be not many masters because there ought to have been some. So be not many masters, but... That doesn't say be not any masters. But I take masters, this is Calvin, I take masters not to be those who performed a public duty in the church, but such as took upon them the right of passing judgment upon others. For such reprovers sought to be accounted as masters of morals. It was a mode of speaking usual among the Greeks as well as the Latins that they were called masters who super seriously animadverted on others. Got that? Don't animadvert. That's No, I had to look it up too. I I read Calvin a fair bit. I got to that one. I thought, whoa, here's a vocabulary word for the week. Those who superciliously animadverted upon others. And as it turns out, to animadvert is to pass criticism or censure on, to speak out against. Calvin's understanding here is, I believe, contextual. The section that begins in chapter 3, verse 1, as I mentioned a little earlier, really goes all the way through chapter 4, verse 12. There's no real break there, that big four, and the transition that takes place is not in the original. It carries through, and for the sake of time, we're dividing this into two sermons, but the context of chapter 3 leads inexorably to chapter 4, verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. The Greek word, and we'll talk more about this next Sunday, that's translated speak evil here, um, might legitimately and probably should legitimately just be translated slander. Do not slander one another, brothers. The one who slanders a brother or judges his brother slanders the law. And judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And we know from a couple of weeks back what that means. Because James said, don't just be hearers of the word who deceive yourselves. Be doers of the word. And now he's saying, and and this really is is parallel to what we looked at in chapter 1 which, if you remember, I said if anyone, you know, if you pray and ask God for wisdom, don't doubt. Believe and don't doubt. And that doubting is not doubt like, oh, I'm asking God for something, but I'm just not sure he's going to give it to me. It's not it at all. The, the word that's used for doubt in James chapter 1 has this same aspect of judging. If you're going to ask God for wisdom, If you're going to ask him what to do in a particular situation, open the word, first of all, because that's where he's going to speak to you. But secondly, don't bother asking if you think you're not going to like what he says, and if you don't like what he says, you're not going to do it. The illustration that I used at that time was King David When he stayed at home, when the troops went off to war, and he went out one night, and he looked out, and he saw Bathsheba, for some bizarre reason, bathing on the rooftop of her house, and he was attracted to her. And if he asked God for wisdom, should I do this thing? God's wisdom was plain as the nose on his face. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is another man's wife. She's actually the wife of one of your best friends. So don't. And if he asked God for wisdom, what to do in the aftermath, God's wisdom was pretty clear on that as well. Thou shalt not murder. But David didn't like God's will on those two subjects, so he chose another road that's what James is talking about saying if you ask God for wisdom don't reserve for yourself the right to discriminate between what you think is what God wants you to do and what you think is what you want to do God says of the tree that is in the midst of the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die Adam and Eve reserve for themselves the right to judge the word of God and to say, well, that's what you say. But we have some other information and we're going to go that direction. James is saying that when you speak evil of, when you slander a brother, you judge the law, that perfect law that gives liberty That law that says, love your neighbor as yourself. When you slander your brother, you judge the law. You are not a doer of the law. If you are not a doer of the word, but merely a hearer, then you are deceiving yourself. To quote from another place in James, that kind of religion is worthless. Now again, we have to come back to this next week. And if the Lord is willing, we will. But I want to close this morning asking a question. All of this about the tongue All of this about speaking and judging and slandering and all of this, what are we to do about it? In instructing his readers in verse one of this chapter, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, as we find it in the New International, James went on to say, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble, in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. And at this point in his message, and I'm not preaching the same message that Alistair Beg did, but I really appreciated what he had to say. And at this point in his message, he said, Okay, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Perfect men, please stand up. I mean, I have to go sit down. Um, Because that doesn't include me. Nobody? Then he said, you know, perfect women? Feel free to stand as well to join those perfect men. I couldn't see it. I was just listening to it. But I'm relatively certain he got the exact same reaction in a much larger church as what I am getting here. We all stumble In many ways, all of us, men, women, children, everyone, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble particularly in the things that he or she says, he's a perfect man. That word perfect maybe doesn't mean exactly what we might think it means, but it means you are mature, you are complete, there is no room left for growth. I'm going to assume that since all of us were sitting down, none of us feel like we fall into that category. So there's room for us to grow. There's room for us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And this being the case, we all stumble in many ways. Consider that, especially in what we say, consider that when you look at the preponderance of podcasters and bloggers and advice columnists that are out there in the world today. Everyone has an opinion about everything. And most people are quick to speak. They are quick to share that opinion with anyone who will take five seconds to listen to them. But we have seen the damage that can be done In the book of Proverbs, we are told that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So great good can be accomplished through the proper, biblical, wise use of the tongue, but no human being can tame the tongue What are we to do? What do we do with this? Are we to go out from here this morning just determined? Never, never, there's just no good way to do that. Never to speak. Never to teach again. Do we all need to get our jaws wired shut so that we can't inadvertently set any forest fires with the words that we might speak? And I would say, of course not. Because if that were the case, if we, if we all had something done to keep our mouths closed all the time, I bet a lot of us would learn sign language. And from what I've seen, driving up and down 2A, there's a lot of people in Alberta who already know certain hand gestures which are more than clear how they feel about what's going on on the road around them. And those hand gestures are just another kind of speech and they still set fires. So James' point is not no one can tame the tongue, so folks go out there and do your best and try to tame the tongue. He says flat out, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It's the same word that's used of Satan in the book of Job. He is restless. He goes to and from the different parts of the world, just looking at things, looking for trouble to do, and the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And no man, no woman, no child, no human being can tame it. But speaking of our salvation, Jesus said what is impossible with man is possible with God. And therein lies our only hope if we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not as a result of works so that no one can boast, this salvation too being impossible with man, but possible for God, then the same God who saved us and created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, has made provision for us by his grace." And it's to his grace that we have to look for the taming of the tongue. As we saw in James 2, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without, is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. This is true. And we who speak will be judged with greater strictness. This is also true. <clears throat> but anticipating next week a little... James chapter 4, verse 6. He gives more grace. What is impossible for us is possible for God. It's impossible for any human being to tame the tongue. But that doesn't mean that God can't tame it for us. And as it's to his grace and mercy that we look for our salvation, we also look there for our sanctification. It is his word his wisdom working in us that saves us. And it's only as his word continues to work in us that we can speak and act, that we can show our works in the meekness of wisdom. And then, even though judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, James, as we saw in chapter 2, affirms, mercy triumphs over judgment let's look to the Lord in prayer father in heaven we are so quick to speak sometimes so quick to anger so quick to the overflow of emotion when we ought to be quick to your word and spirit and slow to speak Lord we need your grace We need your grace to give us strength to tame the tongue. We can't do it ourselves. And we need your mercy for those times when we failed and have used our tongue to set fires that can be so destructive in our lives and in the lives of others. We look to you, Lord, in your mercy. And we pray that you would graciously work in us by your Spirit, that, Father, in the end, mercy will triumph over judgment, and your grace will overflow in our lives and from our lives and accomplish the purpose for which you have created us in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.